This hurts me more than it hurts you, we say, doling out punishment and pizza. Discipline and blessing, love's fraternal twins. Jeremiah, confined by court and guard, received the unfettered word of God. The people of his pasture would know discipline, then blessing, driven from the first to the second by the vehicle of prayer. Call to me and I will answer, said the Lord. And in his good time, he did. He does. Discipline and blessing. The cross of Christ, the price of our sin. Thorn and lash, gouging his sweet skin before the sword, ended the beginning of grace. The rivulets of blood on his face, a serum for the healing of the world. Then came the blessing of his rising and the offer of life abundant already paid for. And all we have to do is cry, Abba, Father. We are desperate for your love, both firm and ferocious, gentle and generous, and every kind of good. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. The Empty Tomb. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial clothes there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial clothes there and the clothes that had covered his head, not with the burial clothes, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first. And he saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned home. But Mary stayed outside the tomb, weeping. As she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, 
Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken my Lord and I don't know where they laid him. Then she had said this, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not, did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener and said to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary of Magdala went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and what he told her. El día primero de la semana, María Magdalena vino muy de madrugada, cuando era aún de noche, al monumento, y vio quitada la piedra del monumento. Corrió y vino a Simón Pedro y al otro discípulo, a quien Jesús amaba, y les dijo, han tomado al Señor del monumento y no sabemos dónde le han puesto. Salió, pues, Pedro y el otro discípulo y fueron al monumento. Ambos corrían, pero el otro discípulo corrió más a prisa que Pedro y llegó primero al monumento. E inclinándose, vio las bandas, pero no entró. Llegó Pedro después de él. Y entró en el monumento y vio las fajas allí colocadas y el sudario que había estado en su cabeza, no puesto con las fajas, sino envuelto aparte. Entonces entró también el otro discípulo que vino primero al monumento y vio y creyó. Porque aún no se habían dado cuenta de la escritura, según la cual era preciso que él resucitase de entre los muertos. Los discípulos se volvieron de nuevo a casa. María se quedó junto al monumento, afuera, llorando. Mientras lloraba, se inclinó hacia el monumento y vio a dos ángeles vestidos de blanco, sentados uno a la cabecera y otro a los pies de donde había estado el cuerpo de Jesús. Le dijeron, ¿por qué lloras, mujer?, ella les dijo, ¿por qué han tomado a mi Señor y no sé dónde le han puesto? Diciendo esto, se volvió hacia atrás y vio a Jesús, que estaba allí, pero no conoció que fuese Jesús. Díjole Jesús, mujer, ¿por qué lloras? ¿A quién buscas? Ella, creyendo que era el hortelano, le dijo, Señor, si le has llevado tú, dime dónde le has puesto y yo le tomaré. 
díjole Jesús, María. Ella, volviéndose, le dijo en hebreo, Raboní, que quiere decir maestro. Jesús le dijo, no me toques, porque aún no he subido al Padre. Pero ve a mis hermanos y diles, subo a mi Padre y a vuestro Padre, a mi Dios y a vuestro Dios. María Magdalena fue a anunciar a los discípulos, he visto al Señor y las cosas que Él le había dicho. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the space between the ending of what we would call the ancient world and the beginning of what we've come to call the Middle Ages, a certain worldview emerged, a certain way of understanding how the world worked came into being. Working from the Greek philosopher Plato, this worldview unoriginally called Neoplatonism took hold in the church out in the West. And Maximus, the confessor, who lived from 580 to 662 AD, uh, encapsulated perfectly that worldview with this quote. The things of the Old Testament are shadow. Those of the New Testament are image. Truth is the state of future things. Plato believed that the world was a mere copy and shadow of the better world that existed in heaven. And what made Christian Neoplatonism unique was the view of history and the view of the future it espoused. Truth is real, but is yet to come. And that view is, in many ways, at the heart of what it means to be resilient. To know that neither the past, with all of its pain, the present, with all of its uncertainty, fully define for us the truth. Only the future contains the fullest measure of truth. And so if we believe that, as David Duchovny would say, the truth is out there, then we must be people of hope. We must be people who deal in optimism, not, not in the optimism of, oh, it'll all work out, but in the certainty that truth is in the state of future things. That we don't see it quite fully here and now, but it will come. It will come. Our two texts this morning from Jeremiah and from John understand truth is incomplete in the present. That there has been pain in the past and, and a lot of questions in the present. And that only in the future will things be made clear. Jeremiah 33, 1-6 is a, is a promise that God will restore his exiled people. The prophet Jeremiah, in God's great irony, is a, a God who, who has tasked Jeremiah with the bad news. Jerusalem, you're going to fall. People of God in Judah, you are going to go into exile. 
That was Jeremiah's lot in life, to tell people who thought they had a fighting chance against the empire of the day that they didn't. And he was branded a traitor and a quitter and a quisling and was dumped into, literally, into holes in the ground, into a cistern at one point, and left to rot and die. And now, God comes to him and says, Jeremiah, tell the people of God that Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Tell the people of God there's going to be a new city emerging out of the ashes of the old. That the full truth of God's work lies not in judgment against sin, but in restoration of all people. Jerusalem, by any meaningful measure, should be and should remain an archaeological site, a dustbin of history gone to rot and ruin and exile. It should be a dusty plain in the middle of a desert by a dead sea. But Jeremiah declares that Jerusalem will be a place of shalom. It will be a place made whole and restored. Nevertheless, Jeremiah 33, 6, I will bring health and healing to Jerusalem. I will heal my people and let them enjoy abundant peace and security. The Hebrew word shalom. Jeremiah declares this not because the people of God have earned it, that somehow in the midst of exile they've, they've put their lives back together again. They've, they've figured out in their whatever step program they took in the 5th century B.C. And they're okay now. It's not why Jerusalem will be a place of shalom. Not because they've earned it. But because of God, full of resilient grace, will make it so. The key word in Jeremiah 33, 1-6 is the first word of verse 6. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God will do this thing. Yes, you've borne the pain of ruin and rot and exile. Yes, the future is uncertain in the present moment because you still live in the midst of other people's empires who control your lives. And yes, you haven't figured out how to follow me fully and completely. Nevertheless, God says through the prophet, I will make your home a place of shalom. That's the promise. Promise is not, oh, because you're worthy enough. Oh, because you're wealthy enough. Oh, because you're smart enough. Oh, because you're elegant enough. Promise is, because I'm enough, says the Lord. I will rebuild your city and make it a place of shalom. 
The Hebrew people had to suspend judgment. They'd been told for decades that their country was going to be destroyed. And then it came true. And they were living in exile in somebody else's land without a temple, having to relearn customs, having to make up new ways of worshiping Yahweh. They had to figure all of this out. And then the voice of God comes through the prophet and says, I'm going to rebuild your city. And it's going to be better than ever. Because Shalom will dwell there. The resurrection text from John is also a picture of the future full of truth. John's story of Jesus' resurrection is a, a puzzling one, at least for me. There's this first visit to the tomb by Mary Magdalene. In John's Gospel, she's by herself. In other Gospel stories, she's with other women. In this case, she's by herself, and she goes to the tomb, and the stone is open, and the body's missing. She has a mystery on her hands. Now Mary, as part of her culture, wasn't one to just get into sleuthing about what had happened. She went back to where the disciples were and got Peter and John as if they were a better choice than her to come help figure it out. And we get this testosterone-laden story where the two Disciples have a foot race back to the tomb to see who can win. It's like, are you kidding me? And all they've got is a mystery on their hands. And, you know, they had one of those guy moments. It's like, oh, we can't figure it out. Let, let's go home and have a beer. Uh, and and they, just sort of, they just sort of leave the scene. But Mary stays in her grief, she stays there by the empty tomb. And it's there that she has this amazing encounter. She thinks it's the gardener. She tries to press this person into revealing where is the body of Jesus. And finally, finally it becomes clear to her that this is Jesus. And she wants to grab him and hug him and hold him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The, the, the present circumstances aren't fulfilled yet. Just go tell the disciples, I'm not dead. Go tell them. Go declare the good news. The, the resurrection account in John, we... We, we want to read it metaphysically that there's something about Jesus' uh, electromagnetic field or biochemical makeup that makes him untouchable at that moment. It's not about metaphysics. It's about mission. Go tell. Don't cling to me. Go tell the disciples that I'm not dead, that their mission is still intact, that they are still called to be my disciples. Go and tell them. Don't wait here. Go get the job done. Don't, don't waste time in sentimentality. 
There's a world to redeem. Get with the program. And so, the perplexing statements of Jesus remind us that truth is the state of future things. God's kingdom is now. The tomb is not filled with the stench of death. The tomb is filled with the aroma of the not-dead Jesus. The Jesus who has and is and will fulfill God's mission to fix the creation that we broke. The truth is, God's reconciling the world. Easter's not just an event that happened back there 2,000 years ago. Easter's something that happens every day in our midst. When we decide to live as if Christ really rose, when we decide to live as if this story is more than just a pious fiction, but is real and it animates our lives and it shapes the way we do things in the world, then God's at work reconciling the world to Himself. And that's going to take three things from us. First of all, it's going to take us Remembering what the good news is. The story of Scripture can be summed up very simply. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixed it. Imagine the possibilities. Imagine the possibilities. Imagine what can be done in a creation that Jesus has fixed. But we might have to live as if we believe that. If we believe that the resurrection fixed creation... That there is now hope. That we can deal in hope. That we can live in the confidence that God is making all things new through Christ. God's reconciling the world and that's good news. But reconciliation, secondly, can only begin to happen when we're ready to let go of our pain. When the exiles were ready to let go of their victimhood and say, whatever you call us to, Lord God, then the prophet Jeremiah could say, Jerusalem will be a place of shalom. When Mary was ready to let go of her grief and say to the one who looked to every appearance like a gardener, Rabboni, teacher, my Lord. Reconciliation. God's work of reconciliation only begins when you and I are finally ready to take the pain that we've, we've tucked away and kept in that precious little private pocket of ours and take it out and put it in front of Christ and say, it's yours. I'm done with it. I'm done carrying the pain around. I'm ready to live as if you rose from the dead. That means third reality. Utter ruin to resurrection seems like a really unlikely story. I mean, really? Would Hollywood turn the exile into a movie? Too improbable. 
God judges a people and then wants them back? Come on. What kind of God is that? Not going to sell many tickets that way. Uh, a Jesus who died and then rose again and said, oh, don't, don't be hugging all over me. Go tell the disciples I'm alive. And get with the business of telling the world that I'm alive. Yeah. Again, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of box office appeal there. Utter ruin to resurrection seems like an unlikely story, except it's always been the way God's done things. It's his MO. It's his modus operandi. It's how he rolls. He takes utter ruin and brings resurrection. And he's done it in every one of our lives. Taken together, the promise to restore. Jeremiah's promise that Yahweh would restore Jerusalem and Jesus' promise to restore creation tell us that creation and reconciliation and God's story, however improbable, is true then and now and into the future. And so this morning, two questions for you to uh, ponder what are the possibilities for your life if you knew with certainty God had reconciled all things? If you really knew, if you really believed in your heart of hearts that God had fixed creation through Jesus, that the resurrection was the signpost, that it's fixed, what would you do with your life? But that begs a second question. Are you ready to deal with your grief? Are you ready to own your pain? And once owning it, can you let it go and see Jesus right in front of you? One more thing. The New Testament gives witness not to resuscitation, or a return to the life of this world, but to a newness, a perfection. And it announces the good news that this world was, is, and will be blessed and perfected beyond our wildest hopes, our grandest visions, by the love of God made present in Jesus. The New Testament also gives witness to the passage of Jesus from a limited earthly mode of existence to a freed and eternal one. And it is Jesus' promise that the same extraordinary thing will happen to us because of his redemptive sacrifice on the cross. I know it can get boring on Easter because we know how the story ended. But brothers and sisters, truth is in the future. What you and I do with the Easter story is the next chapter. Will we be a people who can think of a hundred reasons not to do what Jesus calls us to do? Or will we assert that the resurrection is real? That God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixed it. Now we can imagine 
the possibilities. Let's pray. Father, let your resurrected power speak deeply into our hearts. Transcend and overcome the pain that we feel. The places where we've been hurt and wronged, violated, maliciously or unintentionally. Remind us that your resurrection has fixed that. That can sound really trite and quaint and easy, and it's not, but it's a starting place. Help us, we pray. Help us to see truth in the state of the future things that are yet to unfold as we follow you in the journey of discipleship. Through the risen Christ, we pray. Amen.